You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Good morning, everyone. Got that guy. I like that. Read a response. You can't sit and respond at the same time. You're so Midwestern. <laughs> oh man, it's good to be here. It's good to continue in this Advent series. Um, before I go any further, we have Redemption Hill Kids for kids ages two to four. So if that would serve you, uh, Miss Erica is right over there. Uh, two to four, you can follow her and they'll be right across the hall. You can do that right now. I, I, was, I was reflecting this week with another pastor this isn't in my notes, just something that just kind of occurred to me as we were worshiping. And uh, he's a pastor of another smaller church, and I'm just kind of grieving how there's this massive move within a lot of our circles um, to do what's cool and popular or whatever else have you. And I want to get into that gravy train. And as we were talking, we were just like, you know what? How cool is it that we get to pastor churches and go deep with them? And live life together. Like really talking about family type dynamics going on here. How cool is that? That we may be small, but we serve a mighty king. I'd, I'd rather much be a part of that than some of the alternatives, truly. And so as, I, as, I, as we sang together, as I stand up here and, and preach to you, it is not lost on me that I preach amongst friends. I preach, preach amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. And we get to do this thing called church together. And that, my friends, is a privilege. So with that aside, <laughs> today we are in our Advent series. But just want to say thank you. I love you guys. And it's an awesome privilege to be here. All right. Sidebar. All right, we're in our Advent series called Born to Reign. And as you might know from last week, one of the big ideas of this sermon series is to show that Jesus... And Jesus alone, that's really important, Jesus alone, underline alone, was born to reign over the universe. By the way, the universe that he created, Colossians 1, cross-reference, the universe that he created, he rules and reigns over that, and he also rules and reigns over your heart. It's kind of the big idea of our Advent sermon series. And one of the goals is as we move toward Christmas Eve and the presents and the tree, whatever else have you, whatever your traditions might include, is actually to put you in awe and wonder of this child who was born to be king. Like if you're looking for personal application, I'm just giving it to you up front. I want you to be in awe and wonder of this baby who became a man, who, became the, who is the sinless son of God, who died on a cross for your sin. I want you to be in awe and wonder of that story of those truths. That's what this sermon series is all about. We can understand how insignificant uh, other rulers are in comparison to King Jesus. And as we look at why Jesus was born to reign, I want us to have this a better perspective of why we celebrate Christmas. So kids, I want you to hear this this morning. Christmas is not about, I see eyeballs, Christmas is not about the presents. Adults, I want you to hear this. 
Christmas, need eyeballs, <laughs> is not about the meal. The presence, the meal, the tree, the traditions are great. Traditions are awesome. We have got them at our house. Love them. But they all point to the one who is the greatest gift this world has ever known. That's why we celebrate Christmas. It all points to King Jesus. So all that as an intro, let me pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, I need your help by the power of the Spirit to point these folks to Jesus. The sinless Son of God who was born into this world, begotten, not made, as we sang, who took the hard road to the cross so that we could be forgiven and set free. So my prayer, as I just said, is that we would be in awe and wonder That would be our heart's disposition disposition this morning of what you have done for us. So give us soft hearts and a sharp mind as we look at your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you look at history, have you ever thought about why so many kings and queens, prime ministers, presidents, whatever, have had a hard time ruling or governing, if you will. I mean, just a quick snapshot of recent American history. It seems like our, our rulers, as it were, have a hard time governing, right? Could it be that they attempt to rule and legislate in another person's kingdom? Think about it for a moment. It would be awkward if I came over to your house and began to rule. Got to follow my rules. Here's my leadership style. Here's my culture. Like, all of a sudden, the kids are going to obey my voice. Like, that would be a little weird, (laughs) granted, and awkward, perhaps. And I'm sure that probably most circumstances, it wouldn't go smoothly. Like, I'm entering in, in a sense, to someone else's kingdom. So I'm not shocked, even on that minute scale, I'm not shocked that earthly kings, presidents, etc., have found it difficult to reign in God's created kingdom, in his world, in his universe. Especially if there's a disregard for God's kingly ways. Listen, I'm not going down the road of theonomy. There is no Christian world order until Jesus returns, right? It's not, it's not my point. But I do think rulers and kings live within this tension. They're trying to govern They're trying to tell people what to do, and yet, there's something missing. What they're ruling over isn't quite theirs. Just as we see in today's passage, we read about two kings, two kings, but only one is worthy to rule, only one, and only one is worthy of worship. Last week, I highlighted uh, several kings and queens from 16th century England to kind of contrast with King Jesus. One of the points I was trying to make is that so many people relied upon and trusted in their rule, right? And history tells us, and history sometimes is not kind, history tells us that these queens and kings failed over and over again. Not to mention, they died. (laughs) 
Jesus, however, does not break the promises that he makes. And Jesus fulfills all those promises. Kind of looked at that using kings and queens from history as a as kind of a foil and as a contrast to Jesus. In Matthew 2, we can now compare Jesus with a king who was alive when Christ was born. King Herod, also known as Herod the Great, was a ruthless king. Ruthless. He earned his name, Herod the Great, because of the legacy he left behind. Not only was he ruthless in how he, how he governed, uh, the legacy was left behind in two more ways. One, he was actually a great builder. Everything he ruled over, Herod just wanted to build something beautiful. <laughs> that was part of his legacy. So if you go to Israel today and you kind of do the archaeological tour, you're going to hear, well, this was built during the reign of Herod the Great. This was built during the reign of Herod the Great. So that was one of his legacies. Another part of his legacy is he left children behind who, when he died, they ruled and reigned over the territory. A couple more factoids about Herod that helps us understand our passage. Herod was a king, and his personal allegiance and worship were reserved actually for only one person, Caesar of Rome. So Caesar's like, he's got different uh, kings, as it were, who are seeing different territories, and, and Herod's over kind of the Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, you know, modern-day Lebanon area. But Herod only worships Caesar, which is interesting. But other than Caesar, Herod demanded allegiance from all the people in his territory. And any other person who claimed to be king within his territory was a threat to his rule. It was a threat to his rule. And how did Herod know if there were threats to his authority, to his rule? Worship. Which is interesting. Worship. That's how Herod knew at least from our text, that there would be a threat to his rule. If there was another earthly person the people worshipped, then there was a threat. Think of this this way. What you worship has your allegiance. What has you your allegiance is what you end up worshipping. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, not much has changed in over 2,000 years. There's nothing new under the sun Our presidents and politicians are worshipped. We might not use worship language all the time, but functionally, we do see kind of what's going on here. We see in our culture people bending their knee to flawed men and women all over the place. Just turn on the news. We can make the same observation in sports. Last night, I don't even want to bring it up, but it serves as an example. My Iowa Hawkeyes played against Michigan. They got trounced. But did you notice where they were playing? Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis, Indiana. Fits about 70,000 people. 70,000. Think about that. It's a lot of people in one place at the same time. The fans had an allegiance to one team or the other. And one wonders if hearts were given over to worship. And I love sports. I love my football, I love basketball, baseball. Pick a sport, not my moth to the flame. I love it. But even I know hearts can be easily given over to worship in those moments, over that team, over that player, over that politician, over that king. And just here's what we know about human nature. When a person, 
like a king, president, or athlete, has the allegiance of people, they are jealous to keep it. They're going to put up that extra TikTok video to get your attention. That extra tweet or Instagram post. He wants the likes because he wants your attention. Wants your allegiance. I mean, I know I'm generalizing a little bit, but I think a look at your own human heart reveals like similar tendencies. Here's what, what sent Herod reeling in today's passage. Take a look at verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came from Jerusalem, right? Saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we, for we saw his star and it rose and we have come to what? Why have they made the way to Jerusalem? To worship. To worship. Wise men, uh, quite literally from the Greek, magi, came from the east to worship another king. They did not come, listen, they did not come to worship King Herod. I mean, gulp, right? In my imagination, I see Herod's initial reaction. Foreign men, like randomly, providentially, show up in Herod's palace Herod meets with these wise men, and he, like, he, like, he sees the wise men um, carrying gifts. And, I, and I'm betting, like, Herod's like, oh, those gifts are for me. I'm going to get those gifts. They've come to worship me. But then the wise men tell Herod, they've, they've come to search for another king. They've come to worship someone else. I wouldn't know an awkward moment if it slapped me in the face, but I have to imagine that was awkward for Herod. The star in the sky did not rise for Herod. It rose for another king. This astrological sign, along with the prophetic word from Micah, confirms the work of God. What did the prophet Micah say, which is picked up here in verse 6 of Matthew 2? And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So we've got the star is specific. The location of the birth is exact. Like We're not talking about the birth of a child and then in retrospect, we're not going to try to piece things together. Like these things were happening in real time. In God's providence, the star set itself upon the town of Bethlehem. The star confirms the prophetic word of Micah 5.2. These events are not because of human ingenuity, but these events are from a hand, from the hand of a sovereign and an almighty God. Like, so often we try to reconcile things, Right? What star was that? <laughs> was it a new star? Was it a star in existence? It just happened to be lined up at the right time or whatever, right? We, we can go down that road, that's great, but that actually kind of misses the point. Early church father, John Christostom, sums up what is going on in our passage. He states this, A star appeared in the heavens, calling the wise men from on high. They made a long pilgrimage to worship the one who lay in swaddling clothes in a manger. The prophets of old had proclaimed his coming. These and all the other events 
We're more than human. Too often we try to rationalize the Christmas story, but we have to read. And the only way you can be in awe and wonder of this baby who was born to be king, the only way is for you to get your heart into a place of awe and wonder of what God has done. Let's try to put this into more context. The wise men would have traveled 400 to 700 miles from the east to Jerusalem. So we're doing some guesswork here. We don't know all the facts, but they probably came from either Arabia, Syria, Babylon, or Assyria. But we don't even know, actually, if they were Jews. Now, my best guess is they were Jews uh, who, their families, generations past, were exiled out of Jerusalem, and they resettled in places like Babylon or Assyria. But we don't know for sure, but that's my best attempt at cracking the code of the wise men. But again, the, the identity misses the point. They committed themselves to follow a star to find a baby. Like Before the invention of trains, planes, and automobiles, they packed up their belongings and headed west 400 to 700 miles. Like Des Moines to Denver is 670 miles. Des Moines to Indianapolis is 477 miles. Des Moines to Oklahoma City is 545 miles. Like, is anyone here willing to make that trip on foot with maybe a couple camels? Probably not. Now, I tend to believe if you commit to something, you go all in. And these wise men went all in. They are dedicated, and their commitment was born out of desire to what? To worship. To worship. So, to get to the heart of this passage, let's look at the motive of the wise men, which was also what put Herod like in consternation. Their motives center on a desire to worship this newborn king. So now that we know the motive, here are a few questions I just want to pose as we continue to look at this passage. Just four questions. One, what is worship? We use it all the time. What is worship? Number two, who are you to worship? Number three, how are you to worship? And number four, why are you to worship? This Advent season, we want to be a church who is worshiping. So question number one, what do I mean by the word worship? In verses 2, 8, and 11, the same Greek word for worship is used. We use the word worship all the time in church, right? None of you are unfamiliar with it. The Greek word does have a range of, of meaning, but it conveys an action taken by a person to show honor, respect, or allegiance. So, an act of worship might be kneeling, bowing, or laying prostrate before a king. When I think of kneeling, my mind goes to the kings and queens of, of Europe in past decades and generations. For decades, kings and queens were functionally worshipped. Now, here's another example of worship. I grew up Catholic. I grew up Catholic. And uh, I never missed Mass. I was there every single Sunday, sometimes in the middle of the week. I was an altar boy into high school. I know the drill. And if you've ever been to a Catholic Mass, there are, there's definitive structure throughout the Mass. At one moment, you're standing. The next moment, you're kneeling, and then you're sitting. It's like stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. We used to say that all the time growing up. Uh, before Mass, though, before you even made your way into the pew, we actually genuflected. You know, put your knee down, kind of the, the Tim Tebow touchdown, put the knee down. Uh, I never really understood why until I began to think about uh, what they were trying to accomplish and what they're trying to show. In Catholic tradition, genuflecting and kneeling are signs of reverence. 
I mean, there's some goofy reasons for genuflecting and kneeling. All this is theology related to the Eucharist, which I absolutely do not believe in. But I appreciate the purpose, which is to allow the worshiper to engage with their entire body. With this purpose behind it. We can disagree with the theology, 100%, but they're actually engaging their entire body in the worship moment. So, you know, in our context, we might associate worship with standing up and, and singing to God. And yes, when we gather on Sunday morning and when, we, and when the music begins, there is a distinct aspect to our worship. But here's the reason why we call these moments worship and song and not just worship. Worship is not a single activity, but it is how you live. It's how you live before God. And so it's on Sunday mornings, we, we do worship in song. We also worship in prayer and the public reading of God's word. We worship um, through the preaching of God's word. We worship when we take the bread and the juice. We worship during the benediction. We worship God when we leave this building to hang out with family. You worship God when you go to your job. You worship God by having a cup of coffee with your friend. Here's an example of worship set by the wise men. Worshiping God is about what you're doing with your life. It's about giving it all to follow the one true king, which does lead to the next question. Who are you to worship? We're all worshiping something or someone. Even the atheist is worshiping something or someone. Probably himself more than anyone. So make no mistake about it. The question is, who or what are you worshiping? Yes, if I ask the question to you, we got the Sunday school answer down, right? If I ask, who are you, who are you worshiping? Jesus! Okay, good. We got, the, we got the Sunday school answer down. That's right. That's good. That's good. But let me press on the question a little bit more because there are a couple massive problems afoot in our culture when it comes to worship. A problem in the worship... A problem is the worship of the self. The trouble began outside the church and has crept into the church. In his book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman traces historical figures that have helped shape uh, American culture. And two parallel ideas have been taking place at the same time that began kind of at the dawn of the Enlightenment. First, God began to be seen as a fictional character, right? God or gods, doesn't matter. The theism in general. How could you even believe that? That's not true. How can you prove that? That was one parallel track that was going on. Second, instead of glorifying God, man began to worship the self. Solutions to problems were no longer found in the pages of Scripture, but with human reason alone. I'm not saying there's not a place for reason and logic. There certainly is. But, but that alone will lead you to a place where you worship yourself. And that's what was going on. That's what's been going on since the dawn on the Enlightenment. Instead of living a life for the glory of God, man lives to the glory of the self. But once again, there is nothing new under the sun. For different reasons, Herod wanted nothing to do with worshiping Jesus. So with a disingenuous, just disingenuous motive, we read, these, we read this in verses 7 and 8. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. 
Herod's motive is not genuine. And we know this because of what we read in verse 3. It says his, his heart was troubled when he found out that these wise men came to want to worship, worship someone else. But also we read, and we'll see this more next week, is that Herod was like going to murder every child under the age of two. So right, right away we can say his motive's not good and like, hey, let me know where he's at. I'm going to come worship. In this respect, um, we're all, we all can be a little bit like King Herod. Now, I don't think you're all the murderous type. I like y'all. I'm not going to put you down that category. But there might be a tendency for us to worship ourselves or to want to be worshipped by others. Sometimes this is kind of low-grade stuff, you know. But I think sometimes looking at the heart, we, we, we see that from time to time. We see that wrestling. The human heart can be fickle, and you must be ready to test and guard your heart against worshiping anything other than Jesus. So what can we learn from Herod and the wise men? We see that our actions signify what or who is worshipped. The wise men gave it all up to find Jesus. Herod was threatened by the idea that anyone other than him was worshipped. So worship gives your allegiance your entire life. And we want to give our entire lives to worship and serve Jesus. So how are you to worship the one true king? We know who, now how. If God's word and the star point to Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Mary, what then does worship look like? This gets into function. Functionally, what are we talking about? Let's look at the wise men again. I also mentioned uh, the distance of their travel, but do not be fooled. Their travel was an act of worship. It's like when you got up this morning, you got into the car, that could have been an act of worship. Within the time frame you left from your house and got to Radiant Elementary, there could have been various moments for you to worship. I want to allow Christ actually to help us show us the path of worship. We read this in Luke 14. If anyone comes to me, this is strong language, and hates his own father and mother and his wife and his children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, why do I mention this passage that at first blush doesn't seem to be about worship? Now, even though we don't see the word worship, like literally in here, we know what it looks like. Here's how. The shape of your discipleship to Jesus indicates who or what you are worshiping. So the words of Christ are no joke. I'll make my point from another angle. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, anything you're holding on to has the potential to steal your worship away from Jesus. Worshiping God is not just about what you can give up. It's about also about what you're willing to let go. Giving up something can be sometimes harder than giving. For example, many gifts will be given during Christmas. But giving up something you enjoy or love might be difficult. Like, can Sean Powers give up his beloved Iowa Hawkeyes if that's a barrier for right worship to Jesus? Like, that's how practical we can make that. I'll answer the question later. (laughs) So back to the wise men. How did they worship Jesus when they arrived on the scene? We read in verses 10 and 11. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. 
Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. These verses tell us three more ways the wise men worshiped Jesus. So they worshiped by making the travel, right? And they worshiped as they rejoiced. So I'm talking about a heart condition here. They also fell down. Got some, some action going on. And they offered gifts. So I kind of want to take a look at each mode of worship. First, rejoiced. The joy of the wise men is just the expression of their heart, right? In Greek, the word joy is actually used consecutively in this passage. It goes like, joy, joy. <laughs> and it's like that because the author is trying to highlight something. The wise men were just exceedingly joyful for what they were seeing. If I were to follow the traditional themes of the four weeks of Advent, the focus of week three is joy. It's joy for a reason. It's the wise men's response to a baby, which is the cause of their joy. Now, we all know what it's like to be joyful. I think most of us know. For me, I'll never forget the day Sharice and I were married. I was happy, joyful to be her husband. I will certainly never forget the day God regenerated my, my cold, dead heart and gave me the gift of faith to believe in the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I cried tears of joy. But here's what I know about life. I know about my life, perhaps yours as well. Joy can wane. There are times when it's great to be alive and worship Jesus. And then there are times when joyfully worshiping God is challenging as driving a car without an engine. It's like, I can't even get anywhere right now. It just seems stuck. So how can we connect the joy of the wise men with, with the fight for joy in our own lives, especially during this Advent season? First, your joy in God is an act of worship. I think that's important to hear. We see it here in, a, in just a quick stroll, actually, through the book of Philippians. Helps us to see that joy is actually a command. So joy is essential. But I want you to hear this, especially if you're one who have fought to have joy in your relationship with God. The fight for joy is also an equally an act of worship. It doesn't feel like that sometimes, but it is. Fighting for joy. So you need to realize that by God's grace, you have the ability to fight for joy when it seems like joy is elusive. So right now, where you sit, you can fight for joy by calling to God in prayer. Ask God the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the joy of following Jesus once again. May that be renewed. May, may the joy that we experience when we were a child during the Christmas season be renewed, but a more mature joy than just opening presents, right? But we're celebrating the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Ask God, the Holy Spirit, to reveal to you once again the joy you can have because the Son of God took on flesh to rescue you from your sins. How did baby Jesus rescue you from your sins? Well, this baby became a man, and this man has always been the sinless Son of God. And the sinless Son of God suffered and died to set you free from your sin. Man, isn't that worth having joy over? At least pursuing joy? What more excellent reason is there for you to have joy this Christmas season? I can't think of another. This Advent season, so I encourage you to dial in to the importance of joy. You might not be the most expressive person. That's cool. I tend to be more expressive than most, and that's okay. But the fight for joy begins in your heart as you submit to King Jesus. 
So that's one aspect of worship. Here's another aspect of worship that we see in our, in our text. They uh, fell down. The wise men fell down. The act of falling down, however it looked, reflected their heart. It's certainly an expression of joy and worship. Now let's try to apply this for a moment. Can, can your actions during church at home or in the privacy of your, of your own home or perhaps even at work be a reflection of who you worship? Certainly. Absolutely. Unless you're running around in the Pentecostal circles, you don't see many people falling down like the wise men, right? But make no mistake, every action you make is an opportunity to every action, whether it's falling down, standing up, going to work, is an opportunity to you to worship King Jesus. There are times when worship looks more obvious than others. There are times, but I, I tend to raise my hands during worship and song, not so much for other people, that's fine. But our posture matters to God. The joy that infused the wise men resulted in outward actions of worship, regardless of your personality type, right? And I think it's worth mentioning that there are times when pursuing yourself, uh, pursuing uh, like singing and song, uh, reading the Bible, praying, raising hands, whatever, helps you fight for joy when joy might be waning. And these steps help set your heart right before God. The point is simply this. This Advent season, take action. Yes, we want to have joy, but we also want to take action as we worship King Jesus. The wise men also offered gifts. Almost every manger scene shows the wise men with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, verse 11. These gifts are actually not insignificant. They give us insight to how the wise men understood Jesus. Uh, commentator Michael Green helps us to see the significance of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I found this particular quote extremely helpful. Gold is, gift, is, a, is the gift fit for a king. And the king in baby's clothes was there. Frankincense was in constant use by the priests in the temple. And in the ultimate priest the one who was to make final reconciliation between God and humankind lay before them. Myrrh was used to embalm the dead. The man born to be king was the man born to die. In those three gifts, we see who he is, what he came to do, and what was the cost, what it cost him. And like the wise men, we bow in wonder before God who could love us that much. I think it's a great quote. The baby born in an unremarkable manger is the most remarkable king this world has ever known. He's not only an everlasting king, but he's the greatest gift. Jesus received these gifts from the wise men, but the world received so much more, so much more. He rules and reigns with perfect justice and love. He is the great high priest reconciling sinners to a holy and just God. And he is the only savior of the world. And over your life, doing what you cannot do for yourself, making atonement for your sin through his death. These three gifts and more are, are worthy to give our savior. It is a demonstration of worship. And so the simple application question is this, this Advent season. What are you giving to Jesus as a demonstration of worship. 
It seems like an awkward question. What does he need? He doesn't need anything. (laughs) But we're talking about your heart. What can you give as an act of worship to King Jesus this Advent season? Now to the final question. Why do we worship? Now, I've mentioned several reasons why we worship King Jesus, and I can pull from various passages in the Bible because I kind of fill out the question. The gifts from the wise men indicate why we worship. But I want to draw out another reason why, directly from our passage. Let's go back to the prophetic word from Matthew, uh, from Micah that Matthew quotes. It's in verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. I want you to catch those last two lines. From you shall come a ruler, a king, who will what? Shepherd. Who will shepherd. Jesus will rule and is ruling by shepherding. Now that's an interesting take. We do not associate the rule of a king with a shepherd trying to take care of sheep. But here we are, right? So over a month ago, I preached from Psalm 23, and I spent a lot of time drawing out the significance of Jesus being a shepherd. I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, but but I'll make this observation from Matthew 1 and 2 that connects with Psalm 23. Last week, we saw that the coming king was, was also fulfilling this prophecy from Isaiah. And what do we read there? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, saw this last week, Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. So question, of all the metaphors of God from Holy Scripture, what expresses the sense of Emmanuel, God with us, the most? Now, outside of, of God being a father and Sean being a son, or God being a father or you being a son or daughter, the best metaphor, I think, of God being with us is this shepherd-sheep relationship. Jesus does not rule his people with an iron fist like Herod. Jesus does not rule his people out of hate. Jesus does not rule his people unsurprised by everyday events like earthquakes and hurricanes or COVID. Jesus does not rule his people as a sheep. Jesus rules as a shepherd. He was born to provide and protect his sheep. And I just want you to notice the difference between being ruled by King Herod and King Jesus. You can even think of it like leadership philosophy 101 of a king, right? What's the philosophy of Herod? Now, what's the philosophy of King Jesus? <laughs> They're very different. We, we see that Herod used the people he ruled for personal gain. Jesus died for his people so that he, they, would, they would gain. Herod was threatened by the possibility of another king. Jesus is not insecure about his rule and reign. Herod was merciless. Jesus is merciful. Jesus is never threatened by another king. As a matter of fact, Jesus is sovereign over all earthly kings and queens. Herod died when Jesus was a young child. Jesus died and rose from the grave to show that death has no power over his life. Herod ruled for his own gain. And Jesus ruled as a shepherd so that sheep could gain. And as we saw last week, and as we see this week, there's only one born into this world who is worthy 
of worship. It is, it is this one who has come to rule as a shepherd. The worship of King Jesus, because of his first advent, leads us to worship Jesus at his next advent, the second advent. While at the present we need to sort through the confusion and messiness of life because of sin and brokenness, there will be a day when there will be no more confusion. There will be no more confusion about who is king and who's ruling over this kingdom. There will be no more confusion. There will be a day. But until that day, we approach King Jesus like the wise men. We approach Jesus willing to travel whatever distance is required to worship him. We come to King Jesus fighting for joy in our worship. We come to Jesus knowing that our actions, our, our very actions are an expression of worship. And we come to Jesus worshiping by what we give. So during this Advent season, I encourage you, I implore you to worship the birth of Jesus Christ with your entire heart, right? And with your entire life, whatever that looks like. And it looks different for everyone, by the way. It can. But you know, you do an inventory of your own heart, you know what it looks like to worship. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.